Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Baxi's musical podcast. You're in for a real good one today. My guest is guitar player Ben Christo. Ben has been a member of the legendary Sisters of Mercy for the last 17 years. And if that were the only thing that he had ever done throughout his entire career, that would still be pretty freaking awesome. But Ben has also spent the last 27 years of his life in several other bands as well, including Echo, Night by Night, and his latest band, Diamond Black, which has just released a brand new single called Through the Misery, which is arguably the very best track of his career. But Ben Christo, is primarily known as the second longest-serving member of the Sisters of Mercy behind frontman Andrew Eldridge. Now, here's the thing about the Sisters of Mercy. In the mid to late 80s, the band released three albums that were considered to be goth and post-punk classics, 1985's First, Last, and Always, 1987's Floodland, and Vision Thing, which came out in 1990. Now, the thing about many of these bands that fell under that goth rock category is that many of them have spent the last several decades rejecting the whole idea of the goth genre. But having lived through those years and having been in college radio at the time, it was bands like the Sisters of Mercy that were at the very center of the orbit of goth culture. And although the Sisters of Mercy didn't really have that much in common with Bauhaus or Joy Division or The Cure, those three records helped define the dark and moody lifestyle that is often associated with the genre. Deny it all you want, it was what it was. The unfortunate thing about the Sisters of Mercy is that despite all three of those albums going gold in the UK, the band stopped producing new music following a feud between the band's leader, Andrew Eldridge, and their record label, East West Records, in 1993. Since then, the Sisters of Mercy have refused to release new music despite touring nearly every single year for the last 30 years. But you probably wouldn't know that because the one place they haven't been in a long, long time is the United States, at least not in the last 15 years. That is, however, about to change this year as the Sisters of Mercy are about to begin a U.S. tour in May that includes a stop at Big Night Live in Boston on May 31st. And despite there being constant rumors of a new record with the band having allegedly written lots of songs since 1993, there's no indication that they plan to record any of them, at least not anytime soon. We're going to talk about that with Ben Christo. Plus, we'll be talking about his band Diamond Black and a lot of other great things, too. This is my conversation with Ben Christo from the Sisters of Mercy on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, there you are. Hey, man. There we go. 4.30, perfectly on time. Nothing. <laughs> Never skip a beat. Perfect. Good to see you. Thanks, man. Yeah, so, thank you. I'm so, I'm so sorry. But, um, yes, we're here now. So thank you for waiting, Michael. Not a problem. So last week when I was setting this up, the, uh, the publicist I was dealing with uh, tells me, uh, hey, listen, Ben's new video is about to premiere in 10 minutes. So it gives me the link and uh, longest freaking 10 minutes of my life. But the video comes on and it's uh, diamond black and it's freaking fantastic. And the, the weird part about it was, is I had been listening to all of your stuff, all the, uh, the non sisters of mercy. I mean, there's no sisters of mercy, uh, new stuff available, but, but I had been listening to your stuff for the better part of that, that whole morning. And then to see this video and just say, all right, you know what? This was really, really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to check that out and and, and listen to everything. It, it's really appreciated. To get that kind of validation from you, it means a lot, particularly after it was such a stressful time leading up to that moment of the video premiere. Because I've never done one of those before where you actually have this countdown and everything. And it was is something gonna somehow go wrong. Is somehow when it starts it's the wrong video or something. <laughs> it's yeah, you just spend all that money and time and next thing you know it's that you know the cat washing the uh, <laughs> you're washing the pig or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it was so nice and uh, to get such a nice comment as well was really meaningful. So well, and, and I meant it because I, I, I posted that I thought this was like maybe the best thing I had heard you do. I mean, the, the, the song uh, Through the Misery is just a great track. And, 
and and to to the point where I'm going to say something that's probably going to offend uh, a, a couple of people. I'm wondering if uh, if Sisters of Mercy is dragging you down. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I didn't think I'd get a comment out about that. But tell me about Diamond Black. You guys have released a couple of singles. They're all very very good. This is like I said, you know, Through the Misery is definitely uh you know the crown jewel of that uh, of that collection. But but tell me about about that band and, and what it's all about. I've been in a, a number of different bands across across my life, like rock bands, metal bands and stuff. With Diamond Black, I wanted to do something that was really, ha- had a much clearer idea of what I wanted the brand identity of it to be, um, of it to be something that was a bit more cinematic and dramatic and uh, like song titles that instantly sound like they could be mini episodes of um, of a TV series. The songs are called things like If You Kill My Demons, Through the Misery, Ghost in the Glass, <laughs> um uh and 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 rather than just very generic titles and and i thought that would be quite a a cool and exciting way to 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 have a band um with that level of of sort of thought that had gone into the titles and the lyrics and and what's been nice is the feedback that we've been getting is that um actually the singer of the 69 eyes um he, he he gave me a great testimonial where he said it's kind of like a gothic aor and that really kind of resonated because those are, you know, two music, two, two kind of, I'd say like darker and more introspective music and big arena anthems are essentially where I come from. The, the, those are the two things that feed into my favorite sort of music, big sort of well-produced catchy rock with darker, more introspective lyrical content um, is, is sort of, really sums up so when, when he came up with that and as much as you know the, uh, the term gothic is a, is a is a delicate one when talking about certain bands that i'm that i'm i, I work in um <laughs> I, I think i get where he was coming from with it as in um something that was more sort of introspective and a little bit more of um uh had a more sinister edge to it well i mean it's certainly more melodic than some of the other stuff that you've done you know in your career i mean night by night and uh echo are, are all great but this is certainly more it's it sounds more sophisticated and more mature and and you know the melodicism may, may not be something that you know people would expect from a guy who's been playing with sisters of mercy for like the last 15 years but nevertheless it's like yeah this really stands on its own you should be very very proud of it thank you so much that means a lot and i'm very i'm feeling very um optimistic now about where the band can go um we've got quite a good trajectory planned for the year with another another couple of singles are going to be coming up in the in the first half of the year um that we've just been planning and uh, i think they're equally as good and then they're sort of culminating in a in 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 a record and that is the the end game to to produce a full length record or an album yeah absolutely and i know that people don't consume music in the same way anymore they don't um to kind of value the, the 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 body of work and listen to it in the same way but i think it's still important to have that body of work in order to feel that you've arrived as a as as an as a band and an artist that you've got a comprehensive 10 11 12 track article that gives a cross section of what you do and of course the singles that will precede it many of those will be on the record but actually having that physical product um, as as like an artifact i think is really important yeah, I think I think so too, and I and you know I, I assume it's probably this way in the UK as well. But in the states, you know, vinyl and physical property of of music has great value to people. Still, I mean, it still has a currency to it that you know MP3s and 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 singles, you know, they're fine. But you know, to actually have something that you're holding on to and you know as a document of the work you've done, I think people really appreciate the fact that they're still out there and available, even if the modern logic suggests that uh, you know streaming is the way people are going to consume music it, it, it ain't the only thing they're doing yeah very true and i think there's also a renewed appreciation from younger generations of the physical artifact because they've grown up without him so suddenly to have the idea that you can have this physical thing that's got artwork and and you can hold it and it can be signed and it can have physical value tangibility is is probably quite quite unique and exciting for someone perhaps in the sort of eighteen to twenty five age range. I was listening to another uh, interview that you had done, and you're talking about you know the early stages of of your musical development. You know, playing you know piano as a kid, 
and freaking hating it like every other kid that plays piano <laughs> at seven or eight years old. But that you know it, that it kind of took that early introduction to say, I know I have a, a, a passion for music. I just need to know where to channel it. And then all of a sudden, you get a guitar for for Christmas. Tell tell me about starting off and what was the kind of music that was connecting with you at, at an earlier age. Well, I found that um, whenever there was a pop song on the radio or I heard it at somebody's house, it was always the pop songs that actually had guitars in that I liked more. So a Michael Jackson song that had a you know significant guitar solo in it or a Queen song that was heavier. It was always those ones that I, I gravitated towards. And um, I have an uncle who's only eight years older than me. So it was a bit like having a big brother, but you didn't have to spend any time with him. So it was the best of both worlds. <laughs> Um, and he was a huge influence on me. And he got me into initially, um, initially, like I got into Michael Jackson through him and then very quickly Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Europe, all the big arena rock bands of the 80s. Um, and then he continued to influence me uh, into the 90s with, with, with the appearance of grunge and industrial and stuff like that. But having that kind of role model um, it wasn't just his music, it was the books he read, the films he watched, the, 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 you know, the, the, the games, the board games and things that he would play. That whole world, I was really invested into wanting to be like him. And he started playing guitar and then I was like, well, I want to do it too. So it all sort of melded together um, really, really quite um, sort of in, in those years, I guess, between 7 and 12, 13 when he directly played this this real influence on me. A lot of guitar players tend to, tend to kind of cite the same pattern. You know, they they want to play the guitar, they get the guitar, and then all of a sudden, the moment they it's in their hands, it's all they ever think about. It's all they they every day, every hour of the day is consumed thinking about how can I get better, how can I do, you know, how can I play that one chord. You know, once you started to play the guitar, you realize. All right, this is this is another appendage. Very well put. I remember, I I specifically remember racing home from school, age nine or ten, uh, to to play the guitar. You know, and and it having that level of almost feeling like a toy, of the way that a child might feel about a favorite toy. Yeah. It was that same kind of relationship. Um, and I re I remember that quite early on, I I kind of discovered that. I wanted to be a songwriter more than necessarily a guitar player. Um, because when I was first getting into the guitar and, and learning, it was sort of 91, 92. And it was really the kind of, if, if you, you could call it the apex, you could call it the, the nadir of the shredding kind of mentality, where you had all these magazines that were specifically about being really technical and shredding. And, um, and that was almost like, that's what you need to be if you want to be a rock guitar player. There isn't anything else. And I found that quite um, daunting and a bit demotivating because that kind of technical playing was often a lot to do with music theory and sitting down with a metronome. And I wanted to write songs. I wanted to throw shapes. I wanted to, to I want to emote something rather than it being a technical exercise. I, it, I didn't want to learn how to play chords or scales. I wanted to play songs I liked. And that was my initial um, thing with the guitar. And as well as like the whole playing of it, which would also manifest itself in making little album covers, doing the drawings of the front cover, the song titles, <laughs> even if I didn't even have the songs yet. It was just, these sound cool. And um, like the liner notes inside of where it was recorded, like anyone cares. Um, and just creating these like, one-of-a-kind album covers, just to sort of look at them. <laughs> um, and so it was the whole world of being in a band and being an artist that that really inspired me rather than simply, I want to, you know, be a shredder who stands next to Ozzy Osbourne or whatever. It was, I want to create a whole universe. Well, and it's, you know, there's not a lot of guys who are out still shredding. It's like, it's almost become like a, like a passe talent. Whereas, you know, like songwriting and the craft of it is uh, of playing guitar. You know, a guy who's playing, you know, slow and quietly, like a, a, a Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, for example, you know, there's a guy who's, didn't have to shred probably could never f saw a reason for it because what was coming out of his hands was pretty magical. You know, there are some guys that just don't need to prove themselves that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you know, you, you can listen to some Knopfler stuff and hear that he is, he can be incredibly technical. And also I don't know how much you know about actual guitar playing, but he uses a very clean sound rather than a very driven sound. And that, you can hide a lot behind a driven sound, but with a clean sound, you really have to be good. And so 
again, it showcases that true technical ability, but his choice to be reserved and to be tactical about the um, about the application of it. You mentioned about about songwriting, and obviously that's a talent that develops over a period of time. And here here you are, you know, writing music that is, like we said before, more melodic than you know what you were playing in in Aco or 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 even Night by Night for that matter. But as you mature as as a songwriter, what's the process of, of writing songs for you? Well, it, it sort of come, happens now that because there's so much admin and like involved in in working in music. For example, I just came back from a, a short tour that I did with Diamond Black, and to have a few days off, what I did was I just worked on music for a couple of days because it was like, right, guys other guys in the band I'm going off the grid for a couple of days and I'm just <laughs> and, and, and I just worked on music because it's relaxing for me it's creative it's exciting it's not hampered by you know like the technicalities of it the logic the budgets the the negotiations um it's just the purity of what originally I loved doing so I find that I actually should be doing some I would like to be songwriting a lot more than I really am and I think as the band gets more and more established, I find that easier and easier to fit that in. But at the moment, it's still very much in a stage where we have to get the music that we've already done out there. Um, and that takes a lot of, of, of admin and a lot of conversations and a lot of emails. The best way to get away from music is to add on more music. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. That's... And it's like, I, I think <laughs> when, when you, when you end up doing something professionally, you actually spend less time doing the, the, the actual activity but when you do it it's of a higher intensity and quality I right suppose. right so you know i i could spend an you know an entire week just sort of sat at home playing guitar just by myself or i could spend an hour and a half on a stage playing these songs with a professional production to a crowd of people i'd much rather do the latter so for the last uh, 15 years or so the sisters of mercy has not played in the united states and I don't, and I don't know what we did wrong. I, I don't know if it's our <laughs> fault, but you guys are coming back, and uh, and Andrew has decided to, to you know, continue the band despite you know having you know years of of issues with the uh, you know, record companies and everything. What has changed, and and why, why now? I think it's been a very very organic uh, situation whereby it wasn't as if he said to us two years ago, right, in two years we're going back to the states. I'll be ready to do it then. It's I think the nature of the the shift that we had in the band dynamic in 2019, whereby a new guitarist, Dylan Smith, came in, um, just sort of something happened and there was a reinvigoration of things. We suddenly became very prolific. We wrote about 15 songs over the course of quite a short period of time, even though we were in lockdown as well for a lot of that. Mm. And my position in the band changed. I went from being new guy and I'd been new guy for about... 15 years in the same way that um, obviously on a much bigger scale, I think the, the bassist in Metallica is still the new guy. <laughs> Ron Woods um, is still the new guy in the Rolling Stones. He's been there for 30 freaking years. <laughs> yeah. So finally I wasn't the new guy anymore. And it meant that I had a certain elevation when it comes to my con- musical contributions and they just seemed to really gel and we just seemed to start writing and Dylan, again, is a fan of, of the sisters, and um, he and I were sort of coming from the same place. So we always knew what we were bringing to the table the other would like, because we knew what we had to do something that was sisters-y, but something that was also 2020 yeah. or whatever. Um, it just suddenly became very prolific and very exciting. So I think that has been almost like that occurred. Then we did a lot of work in 2022, once we could come back and start doing it, it went really well. Um, we were really excited about it. The new songs, Andrew is excited. The people were excited. And so just naturally it felt like, right, so we've done, we've just done Australia and New Zealand. Um, what next? And then just this idea of the States. Well, we haven't done that for ages. We feel excited about doing it now. And I think Andrew is in a position whereby he doesn't really have to do anything, right? Right. <laughs> you know, he's he's made his mark on the musical world. And uh, he could very well just say, like, I don't really fancy doing this anymore. He has to want to do it, feel excited about it. And because now he felt proud and excited about this incarnation of the band, he then felt, I, I believe, excited about taking it to America. And so do I, because I feel like this time when we come back, 
it's going to be very, very different from the 2008 tour. <laughs> I was looking at, at, at but as much information as I could, as I could find. And what I realized is you are the third longest serving member of the band behind Andrew. And I think the drum machine. And so, <laughs> and so, yes. so, I mean, you've been a part of this for an, an awful long period of time and it's an unusual situation for, for any band because, you know, the sisters of mercy is, is this legendary band that I remember playing when I was in college, in college radio, when, uh, when the band was, was new and you know, what an incredible mark it made. And then all of a sudden after three records, that's it. And I, and I know there was, there were problems between the band and Andrew and the, and the, and the record company, but primarily this has been a live only band. And when you say there's been, you know, 15, 20 songs written, whether it's by Andrew or with you or, you know, with other members who have come and gone, you always wonder, well, would there ever be a taste for Sisters of Mercy to release another record? Or is that just not something that the band is interested in? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I think as an artist, I'm always going to be interested in recording music, just as I'm always going to be interested in playing music live. They're two very different mediums, and they give you something very, very different. Um, and I I would love to see what it, what it would sound like if we were to record some of these new songs. Um, I do also think that with a band on this scale, which is way, way bigger than any band that I've ever done my own recordings with, we're talking about quite a complicated situation and quite a complicated scenario. And I've never experienced releasing a record on that sort of international scale. Um, and I can only begin to imagine how stressful, and anxiety-inducing, emotionally harrowing it may be to be creating something. The pressure of it, the interference of the partners that you're working with that you think, okay, it's going to be great working with these guys. And then suddenly they're like, actually, no, we, we want you to do this. Could you do this? Can you appear on this? We need you to say this. And all that sort of thing, which he's not really ever spoken about, but I, Andrew, that is, but I can only imagine that it's incredibly uh, exhausting, emotionally exhausting. And I imagine there are some elements thereby where he, when he thinks about doing a record, he's like, oh, fucking up. <laughs> does it take the magic away does it take the pleasure away does it suddenly become this um this this practice whereby you're simply peddling a product in a manner that perhaps you're not completely comfortable doing so um you know we all dream about wouldn't it be great to do this but maybe by the time that your album gets to number one the kind of stuff you've had to endure to get there has just stripped any pleasure and joy from that from that from that original piece of work so my my go-to party line on this is there's no plans to make a record. There's no plans not to make a record. <laughs> that is the best answer I've never heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you kind of, you mentioned it, you know, before that, you know, the, the, that Andrew is in a very unique situation. He doesn't really have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And he's endured a substantially long career. And at the same time, you know, the longer you kind of get away from something, the more daunting it, it appears. And even he may be at the very top of his game. The whole band may be fantastic. But I think the longer he waits to release something, the less and less appealing it is to just, you know, cannonball right back into the process that took you out of it in the first place. I mean, you know, he had problems with uh, you know his record, you know, East West Records o over the years. And, you know, depending on who you know, winds up getting the record to release or promote or, you know, like you're, are you, are you jumping into the same problems? And you're right. There's a lot of pressure and a lot of emotional you know, involvement here. I think a lot of people forget that you guys are still, despite the fact you're rock stars, you're still human beings and you know, the, the same, you know, insecurities and obsessions and, and everything else are the same that are, that apply to all of you. Yeah. Plus in order to be in, in the spotlight in any kind of way, and again, I've been fortunate enough, I guess, that I've never really had a huge amount of, of a public persona. I've always been like in somebody else's band, someone who supports a famous artist. And the snapshots I've had of what it might be like to have that level of fame are quite terrifying. Because if you're someone who is very anxious about 
wanting to do the right thing want, uh, and wanting to be um, a laudable kind of human being, then that's completely wrenched out of your hands when you reach a certain level of, of fame because you lose control of how you are presented to the world. Right. Um, and, you know, we've seen it countless times. People are just lambasted in the press one week and then we love them again the next week and then we hate them next week and then we forgive them for everything. And it's just like if you're someone who is not impervious to that sort of abuse, you can <laughs> see why people and well, rock stars have ended up in, in you know, alcoholism, drug addiction and, and worse, you know, even suicide. Could it be that some of these people were led to it by that sort of that sort of pressure? So again, I've only seen the surface of what it might be like to have that level. But I can imagine that if you're someone like Andrew who has created such a legacy and there are literally millions of people waiting for the next time they get to press play on a record, um, play on a record, you know what I mean, um, <laughs> um, the, the pressure could be insurmountable unless you're able to just completely let go of that and go, I don't care what anybody thinks of what I like. Um, and how you know, and how difficult is it to get to that point? Think about classic classic bands that you, Motorhead, for example, continue to release albums. And does if if any of those albums weren't as good as the original, does it make the original not good anymore? There's always that kind of theory that an artist is only as good as their last work. I mean, what do you think about that? Can can latter work somehow undermine earlier ones? You know. I don't think it does. I mean, your favorite records are going to be your favorite records for the remainder of your life. I mean, you know, some, some, you know, some kind of go and, and fade, some come back, some, you know, never come back. But I think when you, when you think about the importance of the, of those three records from the sisters of mercy, you know, in the eighties, like I said, I, I very distinctly remember the records. I remember the reaction. I remember just like the cultural changes that happened with, young kids who were, who were listening to those, to those records. I don't think they ever really go away to a fan of sisters of mercy. They're kind of set in 1984, 1985. What happens in 2023 may not have the same connectivity to it, but it still may be great. And I don't, I don't think it, it takes anything away from the magic of those of, uh, of floodland or, I mean, you would talk about, you know, early bands that you listen to queen may not be the first one that, you slap on a turntable, but I'm pretty sure if you did, you'd still love it. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly, exactly that. And so, for example, you know, um, think of one of my favorite bands, Judas Priest. Sure. Um, so, so, some of their like, I was asked to recently do a five albums I can't live without piece, and one of those was a was a Priest album. And um, they are so their '80s output is so important to me. In the '90s and the 2000s, they did some albums that just didn't really, this really hit, didn't really hit with me. But it didn't make me dislike the earlier albums in any way. And then, funnily enough, they came back in 2018 and did an album called Firepower, which was just incredible. So, um, yeah, I don't think it undermines your enjoyment of past works because there's always a connection that you have with those works that is more than just the music. It represents a particular era in your life um, and, and on all the associated um, things that were occurring for you. In fact, <laughs> if anything that's undermined um gone anywhere near to undermining my enjoyment of, of an artist is and, and it hasn't because I like these artists so much but if anything's gone anywhere near it is seeing those artists then posting on Instagram in quite a kind of nothing way and I've venerated them as these mysterious rock stars and then and they're like, oh, I just went down to Starbucks and got this latte. I really don't like it. It's like, oh, my God, but what? <laughs> so if anything, it's not so much their work. It's more like their personalities on, on social media. I would even go so far as to say if I saw a band that I really liked live and they didn't they just had a you know a bad night or you know whatever it might be. I may not have liked that show or that performance, but if I liked one of their albums from years ago, that doesn't necessarily damage that record for me. I mean, they would have yeah. to do something pretty freaking awful on stage for me to say, well, that's it. I'm off. I'm off that bandwagon. But as a, as a, a live band that hasn't stopped playing since uh, the eighties, in fact, I think sisters of mercy has toured in one way or another ever since those, those records, you know, apart from the, the COVID, but other than that, I mean, 
it's always been a live band. And, and I got to believe that the audiences that see you guys still go crazy for you. They still love, they still love all of that, such as the mercy stuff. Yeah. And what's been really nice on these, um, particularly in 2022, which I feel has been very successful for the band was that we are witnessing, um, three generations of fans. Now I'm looking down the front and I'm seeing people who are 18 years old. I'm also seeing people who are 60 something years old. And I'm like, how do these young people even know about this band? And often when I spoke to them afterwards, they'd say their parents or even, oh, it just came up on a YouTube playlist or a Spotify playlist. And I was like, wow, what's this? So somehow the sister's music can still instantly captivate a new generation without any necessarily introduction to it. Just like something about what Andrew has created just still resonates with people on a very primal level. and, and I think a lot of younger people, when they consume music, they consume it purely on do I like this or not, rather than the way that perhaps my generation was, if they're on the front of a magazine or they're on this particular show, you can like them. If they're not, maybe you shouldn't. Um, it's just, <laughs> I've heard this, I like it. And I don't care when it's from. They're not going, oh, this sounds a bit 1987, don't really like it. It's just, wow, what's this? That's it. So... <laughs> Um, the the fans have been of three generations. And what I've loved is that we've been playing a lot of new songs. However, my fear of, oh God, they're going to be annoyed because they don't know the songs and they only want to hear the songs they know, which, you know, is a pretty common trait when you go to a live show. You'd like to see songs that you know. I found that a lot of people seemed really turned on by the new songs. And I put that down to the fact that they sound like Sisters of Mercy songs. They sound like the band they've gone to see. And even though they don't know it, because we were able to um, nicely mix it up with ones they do know, they just feel excited about this, this music because it sounds like the band that they love. And I often like to use the analogy of, say, say James Bond, right? So you go to a, a James Bond movie and there's a new James Bond in it, right? There's a new James Bond. It's completely new. You've never seen the actor before. And as long as he or she or they do a really, really good job and all the other aspects of James Bond are there, you know, the gadgets, the bad guys, the explosions, everything, then you walk away happy because you're like, this is exactly what I signed up for. And it's a different Bond and that Bond is great. This is a different song and that song is great. So does that sort of make sense? It does make sense. It totally makes sense. But, you know, there are some people who say, well, you know, I'm a Roger Moore fan or I'm a you know, Sean Connery fan. And then that point, it's like, well, you know, you're still splitting hairs. It's still it's still a Bond film. It's it still has all the great elements that caught your attention you know, early on. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I'm about to do an interview with uh, with John Robb in a couple of weeks. And John Robb is uh, an author, a TV presenter, you know, used to play with the membranes years ago. And he's just written a book about uh, goth. And it's a, it's a, it's an historical look at, at, at goth music. What I find really interesting, not so much about, uh, about the book, although it is, you know, a, a very well done book is a few years ago, about two years ago, I interviewed Daniel Ash from, uh, from Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. And I asked him about goth and I, and I kind of knew that he was not a big fan of being lumped into it and not a big fan of being considered, you know, one of the originators of, of the music. And I know that Andrew is, is uh, no more comfortable with it than, than, than Daniel is. It just seems like there's a lot of people that have been lumped under this umbrella of goth that are not rejecting the idea that their fans are very much part of a culture but they reject the idea that somehow they are nothing more than just that. Like they, you know, mm-hmm. as artists, they feel we're more than just a goth rock act. I and mean, certainly Daniel felt that way. And I, and I assume that Andrew is, is kind of of the same mindset that being pigeonholed under that descriptive language is actually more restrictive than it, than, it, than its usefulness. I mean, how do you, how do you well, feel think- about that? I think the, the, the issue with, with the, the term goth is it's so broad. You know, it could mean um, it could mean simply a, uh, a sort of brooding 
introspective intellectual spoken word kind of band it could also mean some kind of like super wacky skeleton band with pumpkins and fucking <laughs> like and i think it's the cartoon-esque nature of it that is an issue for many artists and why they want to separate themselves from it it's so it just immediately it's associated with the adams family <laughs> like it's always kind of <laughs> comical aspect to it yeah um and but what i do what i do think is interesting about uh, uh preoccupation of the iconography of gothic music it's all about death and skulls right and it's um and it's and it's this preoccupation on that aspect of it which i guess connects with a lot of cultural references across the ages about how to celebrate death is to celebrate life right right and it's about um, our acceptance of our mortality is then to celebrate our our life. And I think uh, what the sisters do is a very joyful thing. And it's very much based on the discussion of, of life, of politics, of relationships, be those personal, be those, be those um, global. And, um, and Andrew's always been very, very inclusive in his work and I think that's something that's really and again I, I would get why he would feel that it would be to hugely simplify the sophistication of the sisters music by associating it with that kind of almost caricature world of of skulls and pumpkins that you know he <laughs> this band has something to say this band is very inclusive and and, and what I what's always drawn me to the band and to Andrew from the very beginning is that He's always been so proactive when it comes to being inclusive of people and to be um, to be resistant to marginalization of, of people, whether that be to do with their sexuality, their, their, their gender, their ethnicity, their culture. He's always been super, super inclusive, perhaps more so than many of his peers in the past, you know, when, when he, he's always been this way. I and mean, there's this historical evidence of, I think, in the early 80s of, of, of him like, of him of him calling out Nazis in the shows and things like that. So, and I think to take something which is so important and vital in his music, this inclusivity, and just go, oh, it's just a spooky goth band. I can understand why he would feel resistance to that. So, so yeah, I think when it comes down, sometimes it comes down to in the middle of the 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, there was a look um an aesthetic of you know the big robert smith hair susan the banshees and and all that sort of thing which was called gothic and at one point the sisters of mercy also had that look but i presume at that look at that time they weren't going hey we're goth they were just stylistically alternative and right. then retrospectively perhaps that became something that was considered to be to be gothic and it's been picked up but the whole like aspect of this preoccupation with death and darkness has endured and it still appeals to young alternative people. That's why like most, most uh, rock t-shirts have skulls on them. It's this <laughs> icon, which essentially says you are going to die, but we love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me just, let me just hide my t-shirt here just a second. Cause go I got go. probably got one as well. <laughs> um, you know, I've got like a, a, a sort of a, a death moth. Right. Yeah, right. So well, this is this is a shirt from the uh, the post punk and industrial uh, rock museum in Chicago. I, I, I did an interview with uh, uh, Martin Atkins uh, a, a while back, and he's he's put together a he's cleaned out his garage and and is now doing a, a museum. We should all be doing that stuff with our well, the, the shit in our and house. So when he was choosing what should we have as the emblem, the logo, the T shirt, then it's like a skull with like a kind of sound wave thing going through. It, yeah. Right. right. Yeah, it was a perfect kind of, music. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm, I'm I'm real curious. How, how did you? I mean, you, I mean, you had been you know playing with uh, Echo for for a, a while back in in 2001, and and that ended, and all of a sudden you find yourself. Actually, I want to go back a little bit because I, I and and I could be. Tell me about the, the the story of this. There's a there's a connection between that band and and Black Sabbath. That's do, right. Do, yeah. Do, tell me tell me about that. It's it sounds pretty interesting. Oh, that was that was incredible. And I will always hold that in very, very high regard as one of the most important musical episodes. And, and before I go into it, 
it's something that I think was so important because it showed me at an early age that anything is possible. But it doesn't matter where you're from. It's as cheesy as it is. It's where you're going. It's where you want to go. Um, and so what happened was that our band, ACO, had had some success on the local Bristol scene, which is where I'm from. And it, it caught the attention of um, one of the other bands that we often would play with. His uncle, or the singer of this other band, his uncle um, is a guy called Ralph Baker. And Ralph Baker is the manager of Tony Iommi and Jeff Beck. And this other guy in the other band, he took our debut album, he gave it to his uncle and said, what do you think of that? Uncle Ralph loved it got in contact and suddenly we're thrust to put into this world of having these conversations with 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 Ralph Baker um at the time I couldn't even afford an amp I was borrowing somebody else's so he said oh, I've got one of Tony's old ones knocking about if you want it so he gave me one of Tony Iommi's amplifiers that actually had fire damage on it from pyrotechnics <laughs> which is amazing um and he then put me in contact with um, the guy who makes all of Tony's cables and gear and stuff. And I'm still still good friends with that guy. And he still makes cables and stuff for me. Um, and Ralph, this manager, he, he really liked the first record. And he said, you know, let's let's maybe talk about doing a second one. And he had um, a producer lined up called Bob Marlett. And Bob Marlett had worked with Halford and um, Alice Cooper at this point. Mm hmm. And so for us, this was, and, and then Bob Marlette came over from the US and was talking to us in our like little pub next door to the music venue. You know, he was there going, you know, I love what you guys are doing, the dual guitar, dual guitar sound, it's really cool. And it was like us, these like little Bristolian kids being like, we, we can't believe this is happening. This is amazing. Because to us, you know, none of us had ever barely been out of the country. And right. Suddenly there's this hot shot American. It's like a movie, that kind of thing. <laughs> And um, he was talking about the second record and we were going to do this. And he was so well connected. And this was insane. Um, and I remember so vividly, I remember being in my kitchen at the time and like doing the washing up, doing the dishes and thinking, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is how it happens. <laughs> and then and then um, and then September the 11th. And then uh, that sort of severed the links, I think, for quite a while between the US and England. And then other things sort of happened where had we have had that momentum with Bob, maybe these other things that happened internally in the band wouldn't have happened. Because I think the frustration of the band members um, that we started to fight and Ralph sort of decided to showcase with Sony, but the internal politics of the band was so bad then that we did a really bad show and things started to fall apart. But again, as I said, it showed me at a very early age that anything can happen if you just keep going, if you just put your heart into it and you try. I think that's absolutely a great bit of advice, but it also shows that when one door closes, another door opens and that everything is like cyclical opportunities. So ACO fades away and you guys break up and then all of a sudden, or, or maybe there was a longer gap of time, all of a sudden you do get the call to join Sisters of Mercy, tell tell me about that process because it sounds. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's got to be a an interesting story about it. Well, the actual now you come to set the actual period between the end of Aco and the start of my of my stint in the Sisters was quite short because I vividly remember I was in America in Texas in two thousand and uh, March two thousand and five. A year later, I'm there with the Sisters on tour with my first tour with the band. So it wasn't really a great deal of time so it was actually quite a quick turnaround um what happened was that i um i'd moved to london from bristol on the on the advice of my manager of reiko at the time he said you know i can see you're someone who really wants to do something go to london because you'll find other people like you mm. um and that was my plan so i went to london and started like working on trying to get in a band there and that sort of thing and um i put an advert up on something called musofinder.com which was what it sounds like it was connected to my myspace page if you remember that and um and, and i'd moved to london having recorded written and recorded two songs um for my myspace page where i sang and played and, and everything to represent the sort of music i wanted to do and what you could do in myspace on those days was you had a couple of songs on the player and then underneath you'd list like your influences and one of those influences in there was sisters of mercy 
um, because I had been a fan of the band already. Right. Not like top 10 bands, but certainly top 20 bands. Um, and I one day get this phone call from a mysterious like area code I don't recognize from a mysterious man who simply says, we might want you to be in our band. And I was like, what? Whose band? Not going to tell you. <laughs> what what's the band like i'm not going to tell you <laughs> wow it sounds great <laughs> so for the first for the first part of this of this i was like this is a joke this guy is mental <laughs> but what is this all about he wasn't he said they were going to play in america they needed a new guitar player but wasn't giving any details away could i come to an audition okay well yeah i mean always open to opportunities always open to do anything Absolutely. I've come to an audition. What am I going to audition? What shall I play? Just bring some Hendrix licks. Okay. Um, <laughs> so tentatively, I go to this audition and I had a little element of fear because what am I even worth walking into here? I'm going to this like undisclosed location um, to just meet in like a shadowy basement with some people. And um, I've got a friend who works for the police and I said, look, I'm, if I, you don't hear from me in an hour... <laughs> Um, so I walked into this, I walked into this room and, um, there was three guys. There was one guy with a guitar and a mohawk. There was one guy with a laptop and there was one guy sat on the sofa with a can of beer, a woolly hat and a pair of shades. Okay. And all right. Um, and it was in this sort of like grimy basement room. It was, there was no kind of, uh, like grandeur to it whatsoever. And the guy with the guitar plays some riffs. Can you play this? Yes, I can play that. Can you play this? Yes, I can play that. Can you play a solo over this? Yes, I can do that. I can't read music, but I'm very good at picking things up by ear. So that really helped me that I was able to just very quickly play the riffs back. Now, what I started to think as I sat in this audition was these bits of music sound a bit like the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> because retrospectively, I realized what they were showing me was new songs they hadn't recorded. So there's no way I could have heard them before unless I'd been at a show, but they still had a sister's kind of quality to them. Um, and I thought, hang on, if this really is them. And remember that I hadn't seen any kind of up-to-date photographs of the band, and um, I hadn't really followed the band that closely for the last sort of five, six years, so I had really been up to who's in the band and what they look like and stuff um and also remember i've got an absolutely zero idea that i'm walking into this at all and it taught me um as did an experience a few years ago that the way that we recognize people is so much based on context what time of day it is where we are who we're with that's how you recognize people as well as what they look like right so have you ever been in a situation where you've seen someone you know really unexpectedly you've had to like look three times to realize it's them whereas if you were walking into the environment where you expected to see them you'd recognize them straight away right <laughs> right and i'd actually to just to, as a quick side story to sort of prove this point further was i was playing with another band a few years ago and um who who, who were doing really really well and into the dressing room walks this bloke this bloke with ginger hair wearing black I'm like Who's this bloke who's just walked in? Is he like security or something? And it took me like 10 seconds to go, it's James Hetfield. Because <laughs> I was not expecting James Hetfield to walk in. So you don't recognize him as James Hetfield. <laughs> so same situation, spin back. I'm there, no idea who these guys are. Why would I? No clue whatsoever. Right. Um, but I'm hearing these riffs. Maybe they're Sisters of Mercy riffs. Maybe. That would be amazing. So what am I going to do? Well, what if I just play a riff by the Sisters of Mercy I already know and see if anybody reacts? <laughs> so, so okay. I play the riff. <laughs> I play the riff just to just, oh, just play it a riff, whatever. Um, and I play the riff of a song called Dr. Jeep from Vision Thing album. Yeah. And instantly, shades, hat, can, one of our songs. I'm like, oh my God. And <laughs> I vividly remember, Michael, I remember looking at my hands and they were shaking because I was like, oh my God, I'm in the presence of, not only am I in the presence of one of my favorite bands, top 20 bands, um, <laughs> but also this is the cusp of a life-changing moment. This is something which could take me on a completely different path 
at the moment, my life is very average. I'm just working in essentially a store, you know, serving <laughs> beer to people and crisps. Um, I could suddenly be part of something really meaningful. Right. So I was really nervous. <laughs> and had I been asked to play at that point, I don't think I could have done it. But I had a good, what is it, 30 minutes of just like, who are these losers? I'm just going to play some. I always feel like I was a bit better than them, to be honest. Like, whatevs. Um, <laughs> to actually prove myself as, as a musician, because I was completely relaxed in the situation. Um, so in some ways, I'm sort of grateful that that happened. And then I just went back to my usual usual life. And a couple of days later, I get a phone call in the store. And it's the mysterious voice again. And uh, he says, um, he says, yeah, we 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 we'd like you to uh, we'd like you to do it. We think you're our guy. And I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And that was it. You know, we went, we had a few few rehearsals, and then I was doing the first show in Vegas. Um, wow! Uh, like I remember, like driving through the Nevada desert, we're in this tour bus, and I'd never been on a tour bus before, and it was just mind blowing. But there's, there's one little aspect to this story that I'd like to share with you that is sure. how it almost didn't happen. How it almost didn't happen was that during our initial conversations, myself and well, Andrew Eldridge, because that's who it was on the phone, <laughs> um, you know, Shades, Glasses and Can of Tenants. Um, during our initial phone calls, we had a call one day and then he said, like, I'll call you tomorrow and we'll talk more about it. And I'll call you at one o'clock. And I missed the call by about 10 seconds. My phone was upstairs. I was downstairs. I was like, geez, no. So I phone back and it instantly goes to fax machine, right? Um, and I'm just getting this fax machine turned like, oh my God. And I keep phoning, nothing, fax machine. And suddenly I'm thinking I could, I could have missed out on something really special here. So I go up to the local internet cafe and send the only fax I've ever sent in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> says this says hey it's ben the guitarist i'm really interested i'm so sorry mr cool please give me a call back instantly my phone rings instantly he calls me back and i find out later that had i that fact is what saved me they'd written me off they were like if you can't be bothered to answer the phone you're done wow. right that fact saved me <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing story that's that's fantastic you guys are going to be at uh, that big night live in boston on may 31st uh, the Sisters of Mercy. I uh, and again, uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to uh, to Diamond Black, you have to listen to it. It's fantastic stuff. And again, I think uh, the Sisters of Mercy are holding you back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, thank you, Michael. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. If if you guys can listen to the new single and and you can give it a listen and a watch on YouTube, it's called Through the Misery. It's the new single and it's on the Spotify as well. And I yeah. really appreciate any kind of follow on Instagram, all the rest of it. So thank you guys. Thank you, Michael. Hey, uh, Ben, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you all the best of luck and, uh, and, and, and enjoy. Appreciate the time you today. Too. Thank you. you thank bet. you. And listen, thanks again for, uh, the time change. And I, I, I'm sorry, you're a busy man. And I apologize. I I'm, I'm not as busy as I appear. <laughs> <laughs> ben, thank you very much. Good talking to you. Thanks you, Michael. Take care. The Sisters of Mercy are coming to Boston on May 31st at Big Night Live. And the name of Ben's latest single with Diamond Black is called Through the Misery. And it's just great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share it, like it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.